Welcome, welcome, welcome to another installment of Down the Hatch. How I've missed you so. It's been a while since the last installment. Down the Hatch is a podcast that is dedicated to the science and clinical practice of swallowing and swallowing disorders. I'm Ianessa Humbert, the host of Down the Hatch. Forgive me for my absence, but I think I'm going to make it up to you guys because this is a special request Down the Hatch podcast and it is requested by the National Parkinson's Foundation. They have asked that we talk about Parkinson's disease and swallowing from the perspective of the speech pathologist that is useful to caregivers, to patients with Parkinson's disease, to other speech pathologists, and to all members of the healthcare team. This particular podcast is chock full of information ranging from what is the best way for a caregiver or a patient to make it clear to their primary care provider that they want a swallowing study, and what is the future of Parkinson's disease and swallowing. I'm happy to be joined by Drs. Karen Hegland and Emily Plowman, both experts in swallowing and clinical practice in Parkinson's disease. Well, I hope you learn a lot from this podcast. I'm looking forward to your comments. Enjoy. So why don't you guys start by telling us about your history in Parkinson's disease, if you have any clinical or research history. I'll start. Uh, So uh, this is Karen Hegland. Um, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Florida in the Department of Speech Language and Hearing Sciences. I completed my research training in 2006 and I started working with people who have Parkinson's disease. Um, When I was doing my postdoctoral training, I joined the faculty here at the university and when I did that I started um, providing clinical services one day per week in our Center for Movement Disorders and Neurorestoration here. And this is Emily Plowman, also in the Department of Speech, Language, and Hearing Sciences. And uh, I have a bit of a mixed background, um, generally speaking, in neurodegenerative patient populations, including Parkinson's disease, and and more recently, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or or Lou Gehrig's disease. But as it pertains to Parkinson's disease, I have both a basic uh, science background where uh, I have studied uh, different sort of mechanisms mediating uh, oromotor dysfunction or or swallowing dysfunction in animal models of Parkinson's disease um, to try and sort of answer some questions that may be uh, easier to, to target in an animal model. Um, as well as um, during my uh, doctoral program many moons ago, uh, looked at the differential responses to treatment between uh, speech and swallowing dysfunction in Parkinson's disease as compared to some of the more limb motor uh, functions such as walking um, and and gait patterns and and things of of that nature. Okay, so Uh, Our last podcast, I had a conversation with Dr. Michael Oaken, and he is a neurologist who specializes in Parkinson's disease, who I know you guys both know because you've trained or worked with him in some capacity, and he's great because he's he's a big champion of swallowing and speech pathologists. And one thing he said in the last podcast was that uh, 
Ultimately, people with Parkinson's disease primarily die of aspiration pneumonia, and of course the aspiration pneumonia is commonly linked to swallowing disorders. So the question I have for you guys right now is, what are we referring to when we ask about swallowing or airway protection? Well, um, I think that's a really good question, and I think that's a question that a lot of patients and caregivers aren't quite sure how to answer when we do ask them about it. So if I say, do you have any difficulty swallowing? I think most people don't have a good sense of what that actually means. So what does it mean to have difficulty swallowing? Um, what I'm looking for as a clinician and as a, as a researcher is, um, are you having difficulty with food or liquid entering the airway? So things like coughing or choking might be indicators that something's gone into the airway or um, some people will say down the wrong pipe. Mm -hmm. um, but also people can have difficulty swallowing everything that they've chewed or put in their mouth. So there mm -hmm. can be a lot of stuff that's left over in your throat after a swallow mm -hmm. that then is just hanging around an open airway. Yeah. Right. Um, and so sometimes people might say it takes me multiple swallows to get things down. It feels like stuff is stuck after I swallow, um, those kinds of things. Or they might not be aware of it at all. Right. And so in that case, it's important for us to be able to actually take a look using some of our different imaging techniques. Mm -hmm. But it's a hard question, I think, because like I said, I don't know I don't know that patients and their caregivers sometimes know how to answer it. So if they're not having those overt symptoms like coughing or choking, mm -hmm. they're not really sure what else to tell me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Maybe it seems like they're swallowing okay. They're still eating and drinking. They're mm -hmm. not losing weight, but right. they might mm -hmm. not have, you know, some other tidbit of information for me. Right. And I, uh, I to piggyback off Dr. Heglund's comments there, I also think, particularly in Parkinson's disease, because it is a slower uh, neurodegenerative disease where it progresses a little more slowly than some other patient populations I work with, such as Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, a lot of times patients make some online adjustments that perhaps they're not really aware that they're doing. For instance, if it's um, becoming more troublesome or burdensome for them to chew a hamburger or a steak, they may start to move to more softer textured foods or slow cooked meats or, or things like that. Um, and they may not actually be consciously aware that they're doing this to make their um, eating and meal times a, a little easier on, them, on themselves. Um, we see a lot of caregivers sort of make these adjustments for patients as well. And then of course it's fairly well documented in, in Parkinson's patients that their sensory awareness sometimes of things such as their vocal loudness or their swallowing abilities may not be as uh, accurate as uh, other patient populations. So that's a good segue into the next question. It sounds like by the time the specialists, the speech language pathologists see patients with Parkinson's disease, they're pretty far down the line um, because as you said, by the time you are really diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, you've probably been living with it for a while and it's maybe your caregiver who said, you know, something's really going on here. We need to see a, a doctor, mm -hmm. right? So can you guys elaborate as it relates to swallowing and even if it's speech or voice, what are the most common things that people with Parkinson's disease and or their caregivers seem to notice? 
I speak softer. Okay. My voice mm-hmm. is lower. Okay. I can't hear him. It plays out almost every time I see a new um, patient in our speech and here or speech and swallowing clinic. Um, the person with PD says their caregiver or spouse, significant other, has hearing loss, they're going deaf. <laughs> significant other says, nope, you're just speaking softer. Mm-hmm. And the reality is it can be both. Um, sure. You know, certainly as we age, we have age-related hearing loss. But um, we also know that Parkinson's disease is associated with changes to speech. And one of those is going to be not speaking as loudly. Like Dr. Plowman said, um, the awareness of the decrease in loudness of speech mm-hmm. for someone with Parkinson's disease is maybe not what it would be mm-hmm. for someone without Parkinson's disease. Now, yeah. does that, uh, that those issues with, vo- with vocal loudness, do they tend to precede swallowing issues? So at this point, do they have what you might call subclinical swallowing problems. So if somebody comes in in that first visit, as you mentioned, and uh, they're going to do a full workup, they're going to figure out, they're going to see a neurologist and all the other specialists. Do you guys do a video fluoroscopic swallowing study then or a clinical evaluation without imaging to figure out now where is swallowing in all of this? Um, At our center, we if it's a brand new patient to the center, so new to the movement disorder, yeah, center. to our to our movement disorder center, so they haven't seen any of our specialists, neurology, nobody yet. We oftentimes will just get a speech evaluation the very first time, but the second second time they come, so you know, three to six to nine months later, we'll often go ahead and do a baseline swallowing evaluation. Now, in my experience, I would not say there's a direct relationship between speech decline and swallowing decline. Okay. It seems to be highly variable. So some patients will have more like very impaired speech, uh-huh. but their swallowing is more well preserved. And that makes sense, right? Because if we think about the concept of use it or lose it, so the more we do something, hopefully the better main, maintained that function will be mm-hmm. over time. There's a lot of variability in how much yep. people talk, right? but there's not as much variability in how much people swallow. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think that accounts for some of it. We're also really fortunate here at the University of Florida that we have neurologists and other professionals that we work with that don't wait until someone sure. is far along mm-hmm. in the disease process to send the referral. We get sure. referrals when they come to see the neurologist. Right. So now just to clarify, when you say there's a lot of variability in terms of how much people talk, you mean it's possible that if you live a- alone, there's a whole, you can go a whole day without saying a word, but it's not likely that you're going to go a whole day without eating a meal or sw- swallowing your own saliva. Exactly. I see. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And um, it's interesting, Dr. Heglon, that you make that point because I work more at this point in time with patients with Lou Gehrig's disease and I see the exact same thing which of course is another neurodegenerative disease Um, and what we see a lot there is that these patients will come in with very uh, disordered speech that is quite unintelligible it's difficult to understand what what they're uh, trying to communicate yet if we do an instrumental evaluation their swallowing actually may be quite preserved so we see that there too. I think something that's quite unique with Parkinson's disease though is 
due to the lack of awareness that we see a lot in these patients of their clinical symptoms, um, the importance of the role of the caregiver. And so if there are any caregivers or family members listening to this, I think it is imperative um, that you become sort of the advocate and the reporter for um, you know, your loved one on, on how they're doing because you'll be the, the best indicator, I think, um, yeah. to, to report some of these symptoms. Another issue, though, I would also like to add is it's a little harder with swallowing because um, this function is going on sort of behind closed doors, so to speak. It's not like walking where you can visibly see if uh, a patient is having difficulty, you know, getting up from the chair or, you know, walking across the room and stumbling. Um, There can be a lot of what we call subclinical issues going on where food is sticking in the mm-hmm. uh, the throat or things are going down the wrong pipe um, without a, a cough response perhaps and without these uh, obvious clinical markers. So that's also, I think, a bit of a hindrance in maybe early um, detection. Yeah, I agree. And I think sometimes, you know, if a healthcare provider is only basing a referral to the speech pathologist based on the patient report of symptoms, Mm -hmm. it's likely that you're missing symptoms that are actually Mm -hmm. there. Sure. Um, Oftentimes, my patients will say that they don't think they have problems swallowing, but then when I look at it under my video fluoroscopy test, I can see that there are actually problems. And I wanted to actually circle back around to something that Dr. Plowman mentioned earlier about the slow rate of Parkinson's disease compared to some other diseases like Lou Gehrig's disease, for example. Just so everybody knows, that is ALS, Think Ice Bucket Challenge. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I I often tell my patients and their caregivers, um, I I give them an analogy with regard to the changes they might experience in speech and swallowing. So if you think about a baby growing and you see that baby every single day, Mm -hmm. you might not notice the significant change between, you know, tomorrow and a year from now. But if you only see them tomorrow and a year from now, then you might say, wow, that's a big change. Mm -hmm. So... I liken the changes that can happen to speech especially and somewhat swallowing to that, you know, if you have tiny changes that might be present every day, you might not notice them Mm -hmm. as much. Mm -hmm. But when I see you tomorrow and next year, I might notice a bigger change Mm -hmm. with regard to speech or swallowing function. And so um, I think that that can also play a role in whether or not, you know, if I ask, do you have any differences or changes in swallowing or speech, people might not say that they've noticed a big change because these things happen so gradually with Parkinson's disease. It's kind of like going to the gym and working out or doing a Weight Watchers program, right? And if you're seeing yourself in the mirror every single day, you may feel you're not making much progress, but if someone sees you six months from now, they may be like, wow. So I think that's a great analogy. Or if you go to put your jeans on and they fall off, there's always that. <laughs> so I just want to say that as somebody who has focused primarily on people who have had a stroke, And so, um, not just clinically, but also in terms of my research, 
I just find it remarkable that you guys have the ability to work in a clinic where you have long-term access to the same person as it relates to the change you're saying. If they have a clinic visit at three months, six months, nine months post-diagnosis or whatever the intervals are, um, you get a chance to really follow your patients over time mm -hmm. and you get to advocate for them and you get to work with people who know, other clinicians who know things aren't gonna get better. It's interesting that on the flip side with stroke, you're the worst you're gonna be the first time we see you. <laughs> right. And there's this assumption that you're just gonna be discharged and you're just gonna fly, right? You're just gonna get better. Even if you plateau, compared to what we saw, this is so much better, right? Mm -hmm. But I think the interesting is, thing is that we might do a disservice to our patients because they might have that one moment with the speech pathologist or the second one just so the neurologist can get the bed, right? <laughs> and then you're doing your imaging. If, you're, if they're lucky, they'll get another fluoro and then that's done. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I've learned from um, talking to you both as well as Dr. Okin is this whole idea that the clinic visits really should be a time where all the specialists get a chance to see the patient, talk together, as he says, um, you're getting best patient care when you're talking, you, there are a group of people talking behind your back about your, <laughs> your care, um, because we're really thinking about your issue from every angle. And I wonder if there are clinicians out there who are working with uh, patient populations, maybe similar to stroke, where you have a trauma and hopefully they get better, or maybe similar to neurodegenerative disease where it's just gonna go down, where what are the similarities? So should we always be making sure we have regular contact with patients where they come back for clinic visits despite the diagnosis, if it's certainly in neurologic cases, you guys are similar to head and neck cancer, mm -hmm. right? Where they come back regularly yeah. and you guys have a better sense of the prolonged nature mm -hmm. um, or lack thereof of, of a disease. Do you think yeah. that, there are, that this is a better model that all places of care should really be thinking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I think it's, um, Yes, so my answer to you is yes. I do think that it's important to establish that that continuing relationship with your patients, not only because they may be experiencing physiologic changes to their function, but their environmental situation might change. You right. know, they might have right. a primary caregiver who is elderly themselves mm -hmm. and maybe also dealing with their own chronic illnesses, and so their needs might change, right. meal preparations might change, um, their ability to participate in therapies might change. And so if you don't check in with people, if you do that one fluoro, you mm -hmm. say, all right, you can do this diet and you're good to go, mm -hmm. you miss the opportunity to see if other factors in that person's life. What's changing? What's right? changing? And I think in graduate school, we all have um, a role in training our graduate students. We all, I think, try to express to them that when you're doing an evaluation for a patient, you're not just thinking about the physiology of that patient, right? You're kind of, you're looking at this whole person sitting in front mm -hmm. of you. You might make different recommendations based on cognitive status for the same physiology, right, mm -hmm. if you have two different patients. And I think that we also um, need to consider those environmental social mm -hmm. factors that people are Absolutely. dealing with. What right. is their reality mm -hmm. when they leave your clinic? Yeah. You know, um, when you said their primary care and then you said giver, I was getting ready to think primary care physician because oftentimes they get discharged and to their 
to their town or maybe their local, maybe their primary caregiver is probably not the attending neurologist sure. who they saw on the floors, right? Mm -hmm. So in that situation, I worry a lot about them being at a primary care uh, physician who's not affiliated directly with the hospital other than sort of, you know, um, just what do they call it when they have um, privileges, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But they don't have access to a therapist walking down the hall to say, hey, so-and-so in room, so-and-so mm -hmm. has, um, I think he might be coughing, can you pop in there? I'm going to write a consult for you guys to see him. It's mm -hmm. not that easy. So what I think happens is they're probably given this diet that they're discharged with, and then the primary care physician basically says, um, oh, they put you on this diet, so just stick with that. And there's no thought that, well, maybe that diet from a month ago is not the right no, diet right. anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh, you're dehydrated. I wonder what that's about. You're mm -hmm. not keeping up your weight. I wonder if it's this diet. But then it's, you know, this big trek to find somebody. Mm -hmm. So you guys might even be in this special world where your patients can come back to you regularly. Mm -hmm. But what about the patients who just can't make it to see you? I'm thinking mm -hmm. even with ALS, you know, mm -hmm. they have serious, both of them have serious mobility right. issues, mm -hmm. but they decline so quickly. Sure. Yeah. And access to healthcare is, is a huge issue. And particularly with the specialized multidisciplinary clinics, which at least in ALS, I'm aware, have been shown to extend survival significantly and the thought process behind that is it's a, a one-stop shop, as is the case with the world-class facility that Dr. Heglon works at at the University of Florida Movement Disorders Center, um, where a patient, uh, and, and Dr. Heglon touched on this, the social and environmental factors. Um, so patients will see a social worker, a psychologist, and we can never underestimate the impact and the even caregiver burden these diseases have um, on entire family situations. And as a speech language pathologist, one can get caught up in the, the physiology and, and the, the science and, and the clinical aspects, but we always have to remember that this is a multifactorial disease that is not only impacting uh, processes such as uh, mobility and eating and communicating, but also the impact that that has on relationships with their, their loved ones, intimacy issues, um, and even vocational uh, issues. A lot of my patients uh, are brilliant human beings with uh, very demanding jobs that unfortunately at some point in time have to relinquish that. And that can be quite a depressing uh, point in time for these patients. And in the clinical trials that I've worked on, the, the patients I work with have taught me I think at a very basic level, the human spirit needs two things, and, and one is a sense of purpose, which these diseases can sort of strip them of um, if they don't get to get up every morning and, and go to work, um, as well as a sense of hope. And, um, you know, they, they've taught me way more than I could ever teach them, and so I always like to um, chat with the, the social worker or the psychologist at the multidisciplinary clinic I work at to touch base because a lot of times they will inform me of important things that maybe the patient um, didn't necessarily open up to myself. So I think that's great because they're, like you said, it's nice to know what the risks are with somebody's swallowing ability and that eventually will take me to my next question, but I think it's our job and I will, I'll never forget 
that um, a few clinicians um, at some talks I gave said, well, what's the point in doing a fluoro if you know the person's going to say no to whatever your recommendation is? And I say, well, what's the point in a cardiovascular surgeon saying, stay, lay, lay off the salt if you know that they're never going to listen? Mm -hmm. The point is, clinically, we have a duty. But we consider it's a whole person. Mm -hmm. And we say, clinically, these are my recommendations. You should know what your risks are when you make your decision to go against the clinical recommendation. And that's completely fair. Mm -hmm. I think we all, we all have said probably to ourselves, let me tell you, if I get sick, don't <laughs> plug me into a wall, unplug yeah. me, right? <laughs> that's what we're saying now in our healthy state. And maybe there are patients who are often saying to us, look, maybe I am gonna die of aspiration pneumonia. But guess what? I like ice cream, I like beer, I like coffee, mm -hmm. I like whatever it is, and if it if I die a little earlier, that's my choice. Right. Um, so I'm sorry that you're gonna have issues with your documentation, mm -hmm. but this is my life, right? Right. right. So it's the whole combination of really mm -hmm. saying it's my job to make these clinical recommendations, but mm -hmm. you are a human being, and you get to decide. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah, and I agree with that. I think as a, a clinician, our job is to do a, a thorough and accurate evaluation and then we can educate our patients. And as long as, and I deal with this a lot, as long as they understand um, the information provided to them, um, and particularly with feeding tube placements, I deal with this a lot mm. with certain patient populations. As long as they know the benefits and the risks of each scenario, then at that point in time, there's a huge quality of life kind of component in that. And hey, let's face it, we do have patients that are like, hey, I need my cup of coffee in the morning or my cup of joe or like a, a beer at night and um, I'm okay with it knowing the full risks. Um, and at that point we, we educate and um, typically patients will make their own decisions, but at least they'll be fully aware of potential repercussions. Yeah, I agree. And um, I think that it's, it's important from the sense of empowering people, patients to make the best decisions for them. Absolutely. Whenever I do a swallowing evaluation, we always take the extra five minutes to show the videos to the patients mm -hmm. there in the fluoro suite, so where mm -hmm. we actually do the, the test. So just to be clear, you're saying that when they've swallowed and their images are visible mm -hmm. in x-ray, you educate them on what you just saw. Exactly. Okay. So okay. I will review the anatomy because yeah. mm -hmm. it, you've sure. ever seen, uh, we have, but <laughs> yes. if uh, others have, have not seen a uh, side x-ray of the head, it's, mm -hmm. you, you might not know exactly what you're looking at. So I'll review the anatomy and what happens during a swallow. So mm -hmm. how the airway closes, how the mm -hmm. foodway opens, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. And then I'll show them their swallow and I'll say, this is what was really good about it. And mm -hmm. these are the things that I'm more concerned about. Mm -hmm. And that I think in and of itself, especially with people who are more skeptical about, oh, well, you know, what could be done? What's the point? That kind of thing. I think sometimes just giving people the information, the education about what's going on, actually gives them more motivation to do something about it. Right. They don't Absolutely. feel so helpless because they understand right. their body mm -hmm. and they know what to do. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you said that because I have a little vignette and then we're going to transition to our next thing. So I will never forget when I went to uh, Japan and I had way more coffee and sake than I could have ever 
pumped into my body, just <laughs> halfway to stay awake and halfway to be culturally appropriate. You decide which is which, right? And so I remember when I came back and I had the most horrible heartburn. And I was like, I don't have heartburn, what's going on? So I went to this GI, now I'm a swallowologist over here, so I know, I know my body is what I'm saying, right, when I walk in there. And I say, I feel like there's something happening, I need to be scoped. And he is doing everything he can to walk me away from the scope. He was, he was saying, you know, you're young, you're fit, I'm sure you're fine there's nothing going on and I'm like I need you to scope me so sure enough he scopes me he's like you know what you have a medium hiatal hernia I'm like I told you something anatomically is incorrect down there and he was so shocked and that takes me to my next point which is that um, sometimes while swallowing is not overt neither for the clinician or the caregiver or the patient, there are often subtle signs that people recognize that they probably want to ask about but don't even know how to form the language to say, I feel like something's going on here. Mm -hmm. And they're pointing to it. So what the next question is, uh, as a caregiver or a patient, what are things you should tell your physician or healthcare provider in terms of these are issues I'm having? So they might not have the language to say video fluoroscopy or fibroscopic endoscopic evaluation of swallowing, but what is the language they should come armed with? So, to, sorry, to request specific tests or clinical processes to happen. So if as a caregiver or a patient, you want to be referred for an evaluation. So if you say, I think that my speech and or swallowing needs to be evaluated, you should be able to ask your neurologist for a speech and swallow referral to a speech pathologist, and, and that should be adequate. If you're just trying to think of the right way to describe the changes that you've noticed with regard to swallowing, that's kind of more tricky, right? Because everybody is potentially experiencing something different. But in terms of things I tell my patients to look out for, if you notice that you feel a little tickle, a little bit of an urge to clear your throat or to cough after you've been drinking, particularly thin liquids, those are the things that are the most likely to go down the wrong pipe and cause that little bit of an urge to cough. Um, that that's something that you would want to report. So that's not one of those things where you just say, oh, you know, I'm just going to ignore that and not tell anybody about it. That's mm -hmm. something that's important. Um, if you actually have been changing your diet, so Dr. Plowman earlier mentioned that sometimes it takes longer to eat or you might make adjustments to what you're eating. Those are things that you should you should tell um, your either your neurologist or your speech pathologist. That but could be what, a sign. How is this sometimes different from normal aging? So people will say, well, I've choked before, I've had tickles before, I'm not gonna run off to a neurologist, or yeah, I changed my diet. Hey, I just mentioned my GERD issues, or I have right. less, less alcohol and caffeine, right. for instance, because I don't wanna take medications right. for it. So how do you help them to understand the difference between having Parkinson's disease and making these reports versus just normal processes and aging? Because some of these things change with aging sure. without Parkinson's. Yeah, and you know, then the truth is, is that there are people that have Parkinson's disease that may never have a significant problem with swallowing. Right. It's variable, right. but the fact that you have Parkinson's disease mm -hmm. and you're noticing these things, they could be related, they could not be related. But as we all know, the only way that I can tell is if I actually do a swallowing test. Right, and um, the test doesn't mean 
you're guaranteed to be told you can't eat something. No. The test might find you can eat exactly yeah. what you want to eat. I might right? say, wow, your swallow mm-hmm. looks great. Your swallow looks better than a healthy 70-year-old without Parkinson's disease. Right. Right. But I can't tell you that unless I have the opportunity to do the evaluation. And so... I think that although it's true that there are age-related changes, and certainly we've all had things go down the wrong pipe before, but if that happens and you have Parkinson's disease, then I would say that it's worth getting that checked out, even if it's just to say, nope, you're fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think of it as people who maybe come to the ER with heart attack symptoms, and there's a reason why they have to put the stickers on you to do the EKG so they can say, you know what, this is severe heartburn. Right. Right? This is not right. uh, a situation where you are about to, you are in the middle of a heart attack. Right. But you at least let them put the stickers on so they can say whether or not your symptoms match the physiology or what your body's actually doing. Right? Yeah. And I think also, um, you know, in terms of management, because then the next question, of course, is so you do the swallowing evaluation and I tell you that I see something has changed. So what do you do about it? Um, I think that at one time there was a tendency maybe to go right to something compensatory, right? Thicken your liquids, puree your foods, you know, take smaller bites. And it's not that those things are without a place, but I will tell you, I rarely tell somebody to make a permanent change to their diet because this is something that is a long-term mm-hmm. thing. Right. You know, it's it's not like your stroke patient who hopefully will show marked improvement in the next right. week or month or that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This is a, Parkinson's disease is something that people live with as part of their life for years and years and mm-hmm. years. I can't remember the last time I just told someone to thicken liquids. More often I'll recommend that they start on some different exercises to try to strengthen, coordinate the muscles involved in swallowing, even though us in the research realm know that there's not a great evidence base for it. Anecdotally, we see that people that engage in, in active swallowing, so doing some intentional swallowing exercises each day tend to do better long-term in terms of maintaining function than people who just don't, who just kind of ignore the problem. So this is a nice segue into the question is, what can we do about a swallowing problem? And so you guys mentioned before that there can be two kind of problems. One is where stuff is going down the wrong way. So food is going into your trachea where it doesn't belong. And the other issue is, well, maybe the food isn't getting your trachea, but it's not disappearing into your esophagus and cleanly moving into your stomach. There's a lot of residue. Mm -hmm. And if you're really having trouble, then you might have both. Mm -hmm. So if you have one or the other, are there ways to segment the treatment so you target one or the other? Or do you think we're not quite there yet? And sort of are the common treatments helpful in that way? I don't know if we're there. Yeah, I would say we're unfortunately not there yet, but we are making progress. Um, Dr. Heglin was involved in a really nice study that was published in neurology back in 2010 that was uh, led by Michelle, Dr. Michelle Troche and Chris Sapienza here at UF where they did a, a randomized sham control or placebo-controlled treatment study. So it was a high level of evidence that, for instance, showed that a pr- sort of prophylactic 
respiratory treatment targeting the expiratory muscles, um, so the muscles for sort of breathing out, um, led to some improvements in um, airway defense mechanisms. So obviously when things go down the wrong pipe, we typically, it elicits a uh, defensive, uh, reflexive uh, cough. And um, some of the work that came out of, of, of that work and with Dr. Pitts um, showed that this treatment program uh, helped with uh, cough and airway defense mechanisms, which I'm sure Dr. Hedlund can elaborate on. I know with the issues with food sticking, and we could refer to that generally speaking as, um, you know, we can think about swallowing safety, which is the ability to protect and defend the airway versus swallowing efficiency. So of the bite you take of your sandwich, what percentage of that is actually passing through to the stomach versus getting stuck. And with, uh, I, I would say generally speaking, our field, we don't have as many uh, treatments in our toolkit for or a little bag um, of dealing with swallowing efficiency, but I know Dr. Uh, Nicole Rugas-Poulier has done some work looking at lingual strength training, and we can think of the tongue as sort of an important pressure driver to initiate a swallow and to push the material from the mouth uh, down into the throat um, and the stomach. Um, but this this research is sort of really still early in the piece. Yeah. So we have a few things that are there and I think that um, will be explored further. Um, and by prophylactic you mean before they have trouble coughing, mm -hmm. you're already working on maintaining a strong cough. It's sort of right. like when they recommend that um, folks, that you start doing strength training before you're 80 years old and mm -hmm. you have a lot of muscle waste, wasting, right. you know, start now so it's about maintaining as opposed to building, which is harder to do as you get older. Right, and, and we, okay. we do this a lot now in um, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease where we know there will be a dramatic and much faster decline in the very early phases, and this is exploratory too, but we're looking at what is the potential impact of pushing and pumping up the system so they have a higher level of which to fall from. And most of these patients have very um, significantly reduced um, peak cough flows and different uh, sort of uh, factors to help with uh, protecting their airway. So the idea is to sort of strengthen that and pump that up very early on in the disease to hopefully give them a, a better baseline of which to function from. And I'm sure Dr. Heglin can talk a bit more about maybe the potential role of that in PD. What can, can you guys tell me, do folks with PD primarily have issues with airway protection or residue early on? Early on, it's more residue, so okay. the swallowing efficiency is what we see. There are a couple of um, natural pockets in the throat that mm -hmm. food and liquid is more likely to get hung up or stuck in. I like that you called it natural pockets as opposed to the zenkers, which is the unnatural right, pocket. Right, that being the unnatural <laughs> pocket. So um, those natural pockets, um, you might hear your speech pathologist call them uh, follicula or piriform recess, and those pockets um, are places that are just likely to get food or liquid stuck because mm -hmm. they're little pockets. And so especially if you have reduced efficiency, if that tongue propulsion, if your the muscles in your throat aren't working um, quite as um, strongly as they mm -hmm. should, those are natural places where food or liquids might I get like stuck. I like to think of it as the corners of your eyes and the corners of your mouth. There you it's go. It's where gunk sits. Yep, right? it's where gunk sits. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So those I think are the earliest changes. Um, 
You know, I think you, you mentioned kind of the two, the airway protection and the efficiency. And I would actually throw a third one in there, and that is the sensory system. Mm-hmm. And this is actually an area that I'm really interested in, um, not just clinically, but in my research right now, is when material does go down the wrong pipe in someone with Parkinson's disease, they typically don't identify that it's happened. Okay. So they, you know, not it's not just that there's not a cough response, but if I say, hey, did you feel that right after I watched something drop into mm-hmm. the airway, mm-hmm. they'll say no. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah. And someone their age did, that did not have Parkinson's would cough like crazy to get like it out. Like crazy. Right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so... Um, the question is, well, why is that happening? Because we right. typically don't think about Parkinson's disease as having a peripheral sensory degeneration, mm-hmm. right? We think about it being, in, it's in the brain. There are structures right. in the brain. And mm-hmm. so what's going on with the sensory system that people are not responding to these things? And, um, and then what can we do to boost that response? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, what some of the research in my lab has shown is that if you can just show the person like I said, when we review the studies, if we show them, we say, hey, look, that went into your airway, mm-hmm. and you said you didn't feel anything. Sometimes they'll say, oh, maybe I did feel a little tickle. Yeah. So there's something there. Right. But I think that, that the attention to it or the importance that people place on that sensory mm-hmm. right. phenomenon somehow diminishes over time. Right. I think it's related to the slow progression of the disease. Mm-hmm. They just you get used to it. Yeah, so like a sensory like, habituation. Of exactly, some sort. Yeah. exactly. So, so when we have airway protection issues where something goes into the airway, it's sort of like a, you know, a, a rat landing on your arm versus a mosquito mm-hmm. landing right. on your arm with your mm-hmm. Parkinson's. You're like, well, maybe there was a little something. It could have mm-hmm. been the wind. I didn't know if it was that, right? right? So maybe it's not just identifying it. It's knowing that this is a dangerous Mm-hmm. experience. So if something goes down the wrong way with us, we have an emergency response like I have to protect my airway. Right. And they might just it's sort of like if you're gonna talk and it sounds low groggy and you just do a throat clear. Mm-hmm. Maybe right. that's their mm-hmm. response. But you mentioned specifically that the brain is typically where people look for for Parkinson's and not sort of in these structures on the body. So they're mm-hmm. not looking at the peripheral nervous system, they're looking in the ner- in the central nervous system. And I guess the, the question that I have is why then um, doesn't deep brain stimulation as a treatment target swallowing? Um, it, I don't hear any reports that deep brain stimulation works as well in swallowing as in limb tremor. Can we talk a little bit about that? Because some, some caregivers have thought that deep brain stimulation really is, you know, the it's 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 a thing that's going to make their, their loved one better, and it mm-hmm. doesn't affect the system completely. Is that fair? Oh, yes. Um, and, I, and it's not just deep brain stimulation. Right. It's all of your dopamine replacement mm-hmm. therapies sure. as well. Sure. Mm-hmm. For some reason, the head and neck structures, so we'll, often we'll call them bulbar structures, and um, so your bulbar structures, are they don't respond the same way to these therapies that your your appendicular structure, so your legs, your your arms respond. Mm-hmm. Um, so you might have uh, deep brain stimulation that really controls your tremor wonderfully, mm-hmm. um, but your swallowing and speech typically are just unchanged. But could it be right. because there's no tremor in swallowing? It could be. It I could mean, be just the type works, of symptom. Yeah, right. sure. Is that possible? Yeah. I don't know. I think, and there's also two 
potential explanations because one explanation can't necessarily answer both what Dr. Heglin referred to as the lack of response. There, it's speech and swallowing or these bulbar systems are indeed less responsive to pharmacologic intervention using dopamine replacement therapy. So, so that suggests that potentially the uh, bulbar system is uh, uh, more is is more related to uh, other neurotransmitter systems. And one that has been suggested is the serotonergic system, which there is some. Um, evidence in other uh, patient populations and in, and in just normal speech and swallowing um, that this system is a little more uh, related uh, to these other pharmacologic sort of or neurotransmitter systems. So serotonergic and neurotransmitter mm -hmm. systems, I think mm -hmm. you're going to have to explain that for the <laughs> listeners. <laughs> sure. So uh, in the body we have um, different what they refer to as neurotransmitter systems. So um, there's sort of different relay stations um, in the brain um, that go out to, to the periphery that help control different functions. and. Um, the historical thought has been that in Parkinson's, of course, that it's due to um, a loss of the dopamine in a specific area of the brain in the brainstem, the substantia nigra. Um, and that is why, of course, they use the dopamine replacement therapy with, with levodopa. There's some, some newer evidence to suggest potentially that in addition to this system being affected, um, that in an area of the brain called the locus ceruleus, um, that this area also degenerates. And in this area, there are other important neurotransmitter systems, not just uh, levodopa, and one of those is this serotonergic system. So serotonin. So, serotonin, correct. Mm -hmm. And so when we um, are using uh, levodopa, that is not impacting this other system that may indeed be more important for swallowing. So that could be one explanation, but of course that doesn't necessarily get at when we're doing deep brain stimulation and, and a potential thought there is that structurally or anatomically um, these relay stations or these different um, functions are represented a little bit differently in the brain um, from an anatomical standpoint. So if you place a lead in a certain area of the brain that may help with... A lead meaning an electrode, something that yes. sends st electrical stimulation. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So if you're stimulating a, a certain area um, and there are some common areas that are targeted in, in Parkinson's disease, whilst it may help um, maybe tremor of the um, axial or the kind of core system or the, the, the limbs, it may not help as much with the, the speech system. And I think um, people are still trying to sort of figure out why, but these are two potential uh, explanations for why we see sometimes a differential uh, effect with therapeutic uh, gains um, with the speech and swallowing versus some of the other um, symptoms with PD. I love the uh, use of whilst. It's very uh, colonialism. <laughs> that's my, uh, that's yeah. my uh, Australian I, origins I coming out. I didn't feel the need to translate the whilst. I, I had a hunch that yeah, the listeners yeah. would know what that is. <laughs> but, you know, I think at the same time, it, I mean, Parkinson's disease is just amazingly complex and I mm -hmm. think there's still a lot that we're learning about what is actually happening in the mm -hmm. disease process but while certainly there are differences or whilst in, certainly, whilst, <laughs> certainly <laughs> there are differences um, 
between speech and swallowing and things like walking or you know using your arms to grab something or that kind of thing there are also a lot of similarities mm-hmm. and so the kinds of changes to the speech system that happen um, are actually very similar to mm-hmm. what happens with gait so um, when People with PD walk, they tend to have, you know, short stride length and they kind of have this shuffling sort Mm -hmm. of. So, um, and if you think about speech in someone who has Parkinson's disease, they have very similar changes. So the um, amount of movement, so how far a structure moves is reduced. And then the, um, so it kind of ends up being like a a mumbled kind of speech Mm -hmm. where the rate is really fast. Mm -hmm. We've already talked about the volume being lower. And so that kind of what we call hypokinetic feature, so mm-hmm. this sort of reduced movement that's mm-hmm. associated, is actually very similar to the gait mm-hmm. system. Yeah. So. And in swallowing, is it fair to say that there is relatively reduced hyolaryngeal movements in Parkinson's, or is there not compared to healthy age match controls? I don't know that anyone has actually I, targeted that specifically. We have decided our new study. <laughs> oh my goodness, we have to yeah. figure out some range of motion. So stuff. I don't, I can't, I can't speak to the range of motion, but right. I can tell you that the swallowing, that the pharyngeal phase, so the, the phase of swallowing when the food or liquid is in the throat, mm-hmm. that phase is faster okay. in people with Parkinson's disease mm-hmm. than without Parkinson's disease. I don't know if the range of movements that are happening are there. Are equally... Um, that has have the same magnitude of movement right. in that faster time, right? Um, and we, that's something to discover. What are the components of that fast swallow? Mm-hmm. Exactly, right? exactly. So. And so that also, I remember a few years ago at the dysphagia research meeting, there was a talk about whether it was always your goal to speed things up. Mm-hmm. And so, in a patient right. population that already has, you know, this function that is potentially too fast, mm-hmm. do you really want to speed that up, or do you want to Let's say you increase the range of movement, you actually slow it down, right. but it comes more into a normal range. Right. Right. And we also don't hmm. know how a fast swallow is leading to aspiration. Right. 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 We don't know if there is a connection at all, do we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I'd like to end by saying uh, whilst uh, our therapeutic <laughs> gains aren't quite as extensive as we wish they were, um, we're, in a, we're in a young field. Right, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it's not unique to Parkinson's Mm -hmm. disease that we don't have very specific treatments for very specific Parkinson's-related problems. What do you think the future should hold in terms of actually really improving not only quality of life, but improving the likelihood that folks with Parkinson's might live longer because they might die of aspiration pneumonia-related issues so fast? What do you guys think? Well, I think um, there are two components of that. I think the first is early identification and education, which Dr. Heglin and her team do a great job here at the Movement Disorder Center. Um, however, sort of internationally speaking, that may not be representative of every you know, city or, or, or suburb. And mm-hmm. I think leading off of one of the findings from Dr. Heglin's work, is the relative high incidence of what we refer to as silent aspiration, so material entering the airway without a typical reflexive protective cough. And and what that tells me, and I see this in other patient populations that I work more with, is that your clinical screen uh, may be less valuable if you know that there's a high likelihood Mm. that you will not hear a cough 
if this patient is having difficulty with material going into the airway. So, and just to be clear, when you say your clinical screen, you mean when speech pathologists first interact with the patient to figure out if there are swallowing issues, they don't go straight to the x-ray, they don't go straight to the camera down their nose, they have them swallow things at the mm -hmm. bedside or the chair side and listen for signs and symptoms of issues, mm -hmm. but right. what you guys are saying is in Parkinson's, they tend to have fewer signs and symptoms. Exactly. Is that right. what you're okay. Yeah, so, mm -hmm. so setting up, uh, which they're doing here, sort of a, potentially even a standardized um, sort of assessment battery that can lead to early identification <clears throat> and education could have the impact of extending survival and increasing quality of life. So that would be on the early identification side. And then once these things are identified, obviously best management uh, patterns for helping with swallowing efficiently um, and safely and as Dr. Heglin has uh, reported issues with the sensory side as a third aspect of that, developing treatments that can really uh, either prolong or extend the function of each of those. And I, I am aware of different labs across the country and actually internationally that are working towards, um, you know, coming up with some, some novel and effective uh, treatment regimes for that. And I would just end with saying with uh, Parkinson's disease, there's great potential, given the slow rate of progression, for these to be effective mm. compared to other patient populations where the median or average time from diagnosis, unfortunately, to death is maybe around 20%, even 10% of, of what we typically see with PD patients. So like five years or three Even five less. Years. Uh, average uh, age of, uh, or time to death in ALS from diagnosis, for instance, is two and a half to three years. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. with Parkinson's disease, I'm not up with the latest statistics, but it's uh, variable and yeah. in the double digits is what I oh, understand. Yeah. So I think there's great, the, the promising news there is there's, just a great degree of um, sort of potential to intervene there and to have some successful outcomes. Yeah. I really like your early, um, I like your suggestions that are in our power mm -hmm. and it can incorporate the patient, the caregiver, and the clinician for early identification, which right. is, it's not like we have to create this fancy new machine to see the swallow. Sure. We already have one. Right. We just have to make it happen. Right. Exactly. And I think that the thing that's really key there is having buy-in from other health professionals. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I am not the person that the people are going to come to with their neurologic deficits. I'm not a neurologist. I'm a speech pathologist. And so I think that the neurology community, our physicians here are amazing, mm -hmm. but this is a unique setting. And yes. so this isn't the case everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so if I could, you know, speak to other healthcare professionals, it would be, in your advocacy for your patients, make sure that you send them to see the speech pathologist, the occupational therapist, the physical therapist, mm -hmm. the um, mental health mm -hmm. experts, because we know that all of those things mm -hmm. are integral to providing mm -hmm. the best care for these patients. And it's not just Parkinson's disease, any of your atypical forms of the disease, your other neuromotor diseases, mm -hmm. um, it requires a team of people to manage. Right. And that I think is going to be key moving forward is that we can't treat 
you know, the patient, the, you know, you've got the neurology silo, and like maybe if the patient really, really begs for a referral, they'll send them to some speech pathologist mm-hmm. somewhere else that never communicates with mm-hmm. the neurologist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's not good enough. Right. Um, and so I think educating teams of providers and having those relationships be established within different medical settings is really key to taking that next step forward for the management. Great. Well, I think the future of Parkinson's disease as it relates to swallowing and dysphagia management is certainly bright. Mm -hmm. Um, While we in general don't have a lot of people studying swallowing, and certainly within swallowing, there are fewer people studying the neurologic side, and then there are even fewer people studying Parkinson's disease. I really view the Movement Disorder Center as a place that is really doing leading work in terms of really understanding what is wrong and how it can be fixed. And the system there is really one that I think is remarkable and that a lot of other places should fashion themselves based on. So um, we will certainly leave some information about the Movement Disorder Center um, so that folks can get a sense of the way that things work there because I think that Parkinson's patients probably fare pretty well um, just by virtue of being a part of that healthcare community. Yeah, and I will do a, a shameless plug. Um, <laughs> we do have a new clinical trial for behavioral treatment for airway protection, so for cough and swallowing and Parkinson's disease that'll be looking at those sensory problems and um, the treatment will focus on having people produce more robust responses mm-hmm. when things go down the wrong pipes. So Great. direct people to the the Movement Disorders website, and I'll have contact information there for my lab website if there are any, any interested parties. Awesome. Thank you both for being part of this podcast. Thanks for having me. I us. think all Thank listeners you. will benefit. Thank it was you. fun. Thanks so much. That was fun. That was kind of fun. <laughs>